Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are five nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So Nilus Anxietas, watch out for drop bears, and join us on our journey through the last continent and the complete discography. Tonight, we are discussing The Last Continent, the 22nd book in the Discworld series, and one of the largest by page count. Holy crap. Um, there's so much of it. There's so much of it. Oh, strap uh, yourselves uh, in for later. There's some longer <laughs> ones coming your way. Uh, well, yeah, but that one, that one's so good. <laughs> let's, let's start with our silly titles before we actually explain who these other voices are. Uh, I... I'm Aaron, adjunct professor in post-cybernetic disorganization. Anna, you want to go next? I'm Anna, a real beer product tester and also intensely craving a meat pie and peas right now. Hello, I am Justin. I'm a level five bushranger, but I'm still working out the kinks in my new metal armor. Uh, I'm Ben, and I am definitely a ardent drop bear believer. And I'm I'm Rampage Lids, but um, that is actually more of a description of how I write books about rams and not about any anger management issues that you may try to extrapolate from that. And you may notice that we have thematically appropriate guests for this podcast because they are, in fact, in a different time zone. And this book is about time travel and wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. But not uh, not about Australia. No, that, that's, the, that's the wrong sci-fi franchise. Yeah, wrong sci-fi franchise. Ben, Liz, would you like to introduce yourselves? No, it's like that horrible thing, like when you're like going around the circle and people are like, <laughs> who are you? You like summarize yourself in a few sentences. So we will mm-hmm. do that. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Flux. I am a writer and an editor. Um, I work um, various jobs, but um, I do a lot of freelance writing. Together, Ben and I run Pratchat, and we have uh, how many years is it now? Like five? Or we're coming we're, up on our fiftieth episode. But. Yeah, so it's we're just over four years now. All right. Yeah, and doing the podcast uh, together. Yeah, so it's a monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast where we cover different books, not just Discworld. Um, we've done some of his. Um, Science and Discworld ones, and some of his collaborations, some of his short stories. So yeah, that's um, that's me and half of us. So Ben, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah, I'm Ben, uh, and I Ben McKenzie. I should give my full name, right? I'm Ben McKenzie. Hello, uh, and I'm a a writer and performer and comedian and game designer. I do a lot of one of those. The colloquial term here is slashy because mm-hmm. I work in the arts. So like a lot of us, I have many different jobs to make enough money to make ends meet. Um, and yeah, we've, I've been doing the podcasts with Liz. I think I've researched this. I keep up. I try to keep up with how many Discord and Pratchett podcasts there are. I found a new one literally yesterday, which has only just started. Uh, I think there's about fourteen of them now. But I think also we were the second one. Oh, that's hmm. exciting! Yeah, the the mm. first one was Radio Morpork, who have now finished. They've done all forty-one Discord books. Um, so <laughs> if you want to, if you want to skip ahead. They're a pair of lovely Irish lads uh, and a couple of uh, other people as well. Who are not lovely by some, like, based on that sentence structure. I, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to be rude about them. But yeah, so um, uh, lifelong Pratchett, well, lifelong since my teens Pratchett fan. Um, and Liz and I, we, we met many years before we started the podcast and we kind of came up with the idea to do this because originally we were going to do an in-person book club um, just after Pratchett died, which was Liz's idea. 
And then that didn't kind of work out. And then I said, well, hey, we should turn it into a podcast. And it took us a couple of years to get it all together and, and start doing it. And here we are. It's really funny how, you know, so so many popped up after after Shatari's death. Uh, I think that really speaks to the the community around his books. Yeah, the the big explosion has been since COVID-19, to be honest. Like there, before <laughs> That's just that all podcasts. Well, this is the Johnny yeah. lately's. Well, I mean before that there was like 3 or 4. Hey, we were pre-COVID. We were pre-COVID. Yeah, we were yeah. I'm counting you. You were one of those. Oh. Um, there's only about four read-through ones. I think you might be the fourth one from memory. You're pretty early on in the list. I mean, I can. I can <laughs> do you want to know? I can tell you. Um, I have a whole list <laughs> no, that I it's maintain. Too many. <laughs> uh, no, I'll just tell you where you come in the in the order. Um, <laughs> it is. Hang on. It's interesting to me because uh, everyone has. There's kind of two. I've I've noticed two things that happen. People either do just the read through in order, or they try and do something different. And um and I mean that sounds obvious, <laughs> but a lot of people are just doing the, the read through in order. So you, I think, in terms of read throughs, yeah, you are the third. Oh no, sorry. There's there's a couple in between that I forgot about. So you are what are we? One, two, three, four, five. You are the sixth read through podcast. Um, but it was pretty close because you started only a couple of months after the one before you. So there you go. Like the Josh fight thing that happened, like we're all going to have to go meet in a field at some point and see who's the ultimate Josh. Yeah. Mm. So I, I have an alternate proposal. Uh, we get as many of you back for when we finally get to Shepherd's Crown as my personal don't, emotional support. Don't steal my idea. That's my idea for the end of our podcast. <laughs> Josh oh, fight. No. Josh fight. <laughs> No, it's okay. You'll get the there before we do. The ultimate crossover event. Yeah. Yeah. Super live event. Yeah, it's always it's always strange to me when I, I see Desert Island and Discworld posting about all of the podcasts and our logo is on there. I'm like, what? People are actually paying attention. Hi, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. There's. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated to know if people really do because I, I know some people do listen to more than one because most of us only put out an episode once a month because, you know, it's a whole book. We want to discuss it in depth. It's a long episode. But there are a few that vary that formula, like The Truth Shall Make You Fret do weekly episodes where they do a book over three episodes. Um, mm -hmm. A few of the newer ones also split the books up into several episodes like Discoverers and um, I think what's the other one? The Discourse um, do that as well, I think. Um, but, yeah, they it's 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 interesting and I'd love to know, you know, if you're listening to this, I'd love to know what, which other podcasts do you listen to? Has we anyone, like, one guy done one yet and it's just called Discman? <laughs> no. No, we haven't. Although there is, if you if you search for Discworld podcasts, the number one hit on most places, if you're not careful about how you format it, is a podcast called Discworld, but it's about disc golf. Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> we, we, of course, did not think about SEO in any way when we named mm -hmm. our podcast because nobody can spell it. <laughs> and but if you type it into any form of search engine, they're like, did you mean complete spelled the correct way? That's what we gave you results for. Yeah, but then you're like, you're alone in that. So like, th mm. that's good too. That's also good too SEO. cute by half. Just have to remember to, you know, be like, no, I actually meant to search for the thing that I typed in. <laughs> so I, I would love to hear both of your sort of how you jumped into Discworld for the first time. What was that? What, were you just sort of like thrown a random book or did you see, did it call to you from a shelf? 
Uh, for me, it called to me from the library returns shelf because I like had this great hobby of going into my local library, um, which was down the end of my street, which is great. Strongly recommend living very close to a library. And what I used to do was go in and I'd get pick up whatever books I'd reserve, but I'd also have a browse of the recently returned books, the ones that were waiting to be reshelved because I was curious like what other people were reading. And it's also just like a really interesting mixed bag of stuff that you don't get anywhere else and so I was aware of Terry Pratchett um, before that but I saw The Fifth Elephant on there and I was like you know what I'll give this a try and so I borrowed it I read it Um, and for those of you who've read it it's a weird one to start with like it kind of throws you in with a lot of assumed (laughs) knowledge but I was like yeah I think I'm into this and so I just sort of went back to the library headed to the Terry Pratchett shelf specifically after that and just got whichever ones were available because they were very popular. So it was, you couldn't possibly read them in order unless you're willing to wait a really long time between books. So I just grabbed whichever ones were there and just read them sort of haphazardly over the next few years. Yeah, um, but we had to revise your Pratchett origin story though, Liz, because remember you d- realized you had read a Pratchett much earlier yeah, than that. But they, but they said Discworld. So Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So it turned out I yeah. had actually read a Terry Pratchett <laughs> book earlier um, and forgotten, just blanked it from my memory, from um, my school teacher used to have a shelf of books she thought would like in year six, just in the, of her personal collection. And there was um, Truckers was one mm. of the books that was there. So mm. I'd actually read that um, in year six and completely forgotten until we came back around to reading. I was like, wait, I know this. So, <laughs> yeah, had like two entryways in. And that's kind of nice, I reckon. Yeah, the Bromeliad trilogy is great. Mm. It's absolutely up there with my favorite, Pratchett. Um, but I, I got into it because I ran out of Douglas Adams books, uh, <laughs> which I was reading far too young. Uh, and when I say far too young, I don't mean it was inappropriate. I mean, I didn't get all the jokes because I was too young. Uh, but <laughs> I ran out because, you know, he didn't write that many. He famously hated writing, even though that was what he did for a living. And my mum went into a bookshop, actually, and said- my son loves Douglas Adams, what else would you recommend? And they, I, I can't even remember which bookshop it was, but whoever the bookseller was, was quite canny because they always said, oh, you should try this and sold her a copy of The Colour of Magic. So I started reading them, yeah, when I was a teenager and I read them in order and I loved them. Well, they were great. Uh, and so I kept up with them. Um, I worked in that same, well, not the same bookshop. I worked in my local bookshop in the town where I grew up. Uh, and because I was working in the bookshop, I got a staff discount. So any of the books that came out during that time, I was buying in hardcover as they released. Ooh, um, nice. And and then I kept getting them for a little while after until kind of my the money ran out, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and then they go back to paperbacks on my shelf. But yeah, and and then I've found um, as we've been doing the podcast and going back and rereading. There's just weird gaps of ones that I haven't read before. Not too many, but like we've just recorded. It's not out at the time we're reco- recording this, but uh, we've just recorded our episode about Thief of Time. And I realize I haven't read it before. And I'm like, how is this possible? Oh. <laughs> this is like the, the most timey-wimey, strangely uh, sci-fi weird time concept book he ever wrote, really, in some ways. And I'd never read it. Uh, so well, yeah, maybe that was you have. A- yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can blame the history monks for that one. <laughs> yeah, there we go. See, they've revised, they put history back together yeah. wrong, and my reading of it got erased. Weird. Don't worry, Justin, you'll get that in about three months. <laughs> <laughs> Should edit this into mm. that. No. <laughs> we did have a reannual joke in um, our pyramids episode. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> well, it, they, they appear in a footnote in a really 
early book, right? In Mort. Yeah. Uh, that's what his, uh, his family farms. It's weird There's that so you mentioned many- pyramids because um, I noticed in this book, they specifically say the word jelly baby, meaning like the lollies. So like they exist <laughs> in the disc world. <laughs> oh no. They know about them. So like <laughs> that makes yeah. the whole like jelly baby pun, like a little bit strange. Mm. There's a lot of things like that, particularly in Thief of Time, which I won't talk about anymore because I know you're not up to it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things in the books where you read a thing and you're like, this doesn't make sense in the context of the disc world, but it's funny. So I'll let it go. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it was Feet of Clay taught us that uh, the disc world has uh, kosher butchers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he never really establishes what who they're for. Okay. So, uh, why don't we jump into it? I'm going to do a quick plot treatment just because there's a lot that happens in this book, but it's not a lot of plot. It's a lot of set pieces and bits. We more or less begin at Unseen University with the senior wizards trying to figure out what the heck is going on with the librarian's morphic resonance flu. He is so sick, in fact, that there isn't even an ook of protest at being called the M-word, much less the explosion of violence that normally happens. Their attempts to magic the problem away fail as they realize that no one knows his real name. The only one who might know is Rincewind, erstwhile assistant librarian and level zero wizard, currently in parts unknown after his last adventure, uh, running away from the Agatean Empire. Meanwhile, Rincewind is continuing to studiously attempt to avoid the plot in 4X, a continent similar to but legally distinct from Australia. While he works his way down the TV tropes page on Australia in popular culture in the 1970s through 1990s, accompanied by a trickster god in the rough form of a kangaroo, mostly, we get hints that time, space, and geography work differently here. Uh, wait, not hints. Boomerangs to the forehead. In the significantly more fun for those of us who don't get the Australia jokes part of the book, the senior wizards and Ponder Stibbons and the head housekeeper, Mrs. Whitlow, find their way through a window uh, from the office of the professor on uh, egregious geography, I think. They find they pop through a window onto an aggressively Lamarckian island where the plant and animal life is desperate to be of service, thanks to a local god of evolution, and also several millennia in the past. Intellectual debates over evolutionary pressure, closed time-like curves, and whatever the beetle version of carcinization is ensue. Eventually, the wizards make their way over to the proto-continent of 4X, in the distant past, where the librarian causes the drought that Rincewind in the future is trying to solve, and the wizards design the duck-billed platypus by committee. Luckily for the rest of the disc, the wizards are frozen in time by stray magic left over from the continent's creation before they can make any more messes. Rincewind in the future, functioning better while drunk than sober, with the help of the wizards at the local university, and in particular Archchancellor, wait, no, sorry, that's a lowercase a, Archchancellor, Rincewind, possibly a relation, rescues the wizards and brings back the rain, and somehow Rincewind departs the story not pursued by any peril. No worries. It's so weird to hear an American say no worries, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you up to no walkers very soon. Like, we'll work yeah. up to it. Yeah. We can, we can, like, I can make a San Francisco version of it. Do not worry about it. <laughs> um, I love that. That's great. So, yeah, lots of stuff happened at Rincewind. Perfect. And there's the it. senior wizards. Uh, wait, actually, you know what? 
the the thought I had is is rinse is because of the stuff that happens at the end is rinsewind like vimes and is permanently canard. <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly it would certainly explain his hyper competence in some of the later um, science of Discworld books because he's great, and particularly the second one, it's like one of the best things about that book, which is otherwise not so great, is he is he's great in it, and I, it gives him a little bit of a new lease on life. And even in the first one, he's a bit. He's a bit more adventurous than in previous ones. That's kind of a, a transition for him, I think. I haven't actually read these. Uh, they're supplemental, right? Yeah, yeah you don't need to read them. They're a story, though. So that's what they're a story. The, the story is like, it's like non-fiction chapter, fiction chapter, hmm. and then the story like tethers the science that goes with it. So I was very uninterested in reading them because I was like, this is going to be super boring. And in the case of the second one, it is. But um, the, the fiction <laughs> parts are actually really good. So even if you just skip the science and just read the fiction chapters it's fun but it's not like canonical like you're not gonna not understand parts of this bigger discord story if you don't read it interesting is that fair ben do you reckon oh look i reckon it's it's canonical in the sense that it definitely happens in the but it's not nothing that happens in them is referenced in any of the later books Mm. from memory it's a better way to put it yeah but they are fun we have a listener who, who rereads them out loud uh shout out to danny if you're listening to this but um and he he said that when they read those science of discord ones, they just skip the not the nonfiction chapters and just read Good the fiction bits, and it's like a a novella basically, and it's fun. We'll have to check those out. Yeah, the fiction parts are good. <laughs> do not follow our example and say you're going to do everything he ever wrote because you will be here forever. <laughs> no, Justin, we already had one podcast expand under our feet. We're not, uh, we're oh, not yes. doing that to this one. That's right. You have a Babylon 5 podcast and you've just discovered <laughs> there's going to be a new Babylon 5. <laughs> we are nearly four seasons done. And this motherfucker <laughs> plays the greatest joke ever. Right. Uh, well, I mean, look, you'll have a break. You'll have a rest. Yeah, we're going to have a break. It's, it's still hilarious. Um, <laughs> so I have a question about this book. Just I need I need a context or something. Tinned beer is not a thing, is it? Oh, That's, it is. This is just cans. Not in the, not in the 21st oh, mean, century, like, but it used to uh, be. What do you mean by tins? From like my culture perception, like a tin is like a thing you put like tuna in. Well, beer, beer did used to come oh, in tins like pull? that in Australia mm-hmm. in the seventies. We still call them tinnies. Yeah, we still call well. them tinnies. Like a can of beer is called a tinny. Okay, this it, is horrifying. And I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know the full history of this, but if you watch any Australian films made in the like sixties and seventies, um, there's one. I watched one actually as research for something that came up in this uh, our episode about this book researching an old bit of Australian slang, but there's an old um, there's an Australian war film about the Vietnam War and they're always drinking beers when they're, you know, off duty. And the beers there, they come in tins and you need a tin opener to open them. I'm just imagining getting out the can opener to, like, open it up and just having the cats be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's time, it's time, it's tuna time. And then it's all like, serrated around nope, the edge. This is, this, is a treat for, this is a treat for the people. Truly horrifying. So, do you not have beer in cans in America? We have. Well, we got like we got like the pop top cans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what we have now. We have that's other what we call cans them with a pop top. Yeah. Um, we still call them tinnies, though. Yeah. But like nothing, yeah. we need like a can opener for. I mean, no, you know, well, that's we how they used to come in 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 the U.S. too, right? Okay. I, this is this is partially just me like lacking a certain. This is like a blind spot in just my historical knowledge. And I learned from seminal text, um, Back to the Future, that you used to have to open Coke in the 50s on the, like, dispenser machine. Like, they'd have a thing to 
crack it open. Aside from all of the very specific Australia references that I'm sure went whizzing over our heads, um, is there anything else that that folks found that, that we need to clear up uh, at the beginning? Good. Okay, moving on. Anna, tell us about your feelings. You read this one, right? Before? Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Weirdly, this is one of the ones that I actually had a fairly decent recollection of, unlike like a lot of the ones in the recent past. I found it fun to read, but it also like didn't particularly catch my interest that like I would kind of sit down and, you know, read for like 10, 15 minutes and then be like, eh, gonna fall asleep now or whatever that it's it didn't like hook me with okay you know here's an exciting plot let's like sit down with a coffee and just read for an extended session the way that you know a lot of the say watch books do but it was it was still fun it's just kind of fluffy it's it's also a little bit odd because we've had such a string of books that really do have a very strong plot to them recently. I mean, even Interesting Times, which we kind of lambasted, had a strong plot to it, um, even if it was questionable in other ways. But that this didn't really, I mean, there's there's the two plots, but neither of them has really any conflict. It's just sort of like things happen and then they converge and it's a lot of jokes, but it's not, it, it felt fluffy. It felt like I was reading Eric again, except that this is like eight times longer. Obviously, I won't ask you to rehash your entire podcast on it, but I'd, I'd love your, your thoughts, Ben or Liz, whichever. Well, I agree with that. Like, it felt like the plot was mostly there to give an excuse for a string of really interesting scenes and jokes. Like, the plot came secondary to satirizing Australia to, like, make... It was just like, yeah, usually, like... The best Terry Pratchett books have both, like a bunch of humorous scenes and also a strong plot driving one so that if you remove either one of them, the other one still can survive. If you remove the the fun of this one, there would be no plot really. And I spent I, – I, I enjoyed this read. Um, and on when we did it for our podcast, I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to because I thought it would be a lot more cringe with the Australia stuff. Um, and it is a little bit, but not as much as I'd expected. But, yeah, like – I think the jokes and some of the scenes in particular are enough to make me like this book, but it doesn't feel like a book. It's kind of like a sketch show, like an episode mm. of Monty Python or something where there's a thematic link and they're going somewhere, but you could break it all up and move it around and that would be fine too. I really like that as a summary. Yeah, it feels kind of like watching Holy Grail or something where each individual chunk is very fun to read, but it doesn't necessarily connect super coherently. Mm. Mm. And that way it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which <laughs> is Doug Saddams writes a very funny scene. His plots are nonsense. Like, they make no sense. Like, there's broad things that connect and, and, and make sense. But particularly if you go back and listen to the radio series or you read some of the later books, it's just a bunch of good gags strung together in a loose <laughs> plot. And that this is like that too. And I, But I loved it. I loved that. To me, just knowing the context of what comes later, it felt like t- Terry was just sort of getting Rincewind out of his system entirely. <laughs> it felt like he was sort of writing him into writing him into a place where he could stop running away from things and just sort of like stop. 
you know, it was it was the continuation of Rincewind goes to a pastiche of a foreign place and runs away from things, uh, with the added modification of all of the jokes about Australia and everything there being deadly, you know, which is the perfect place for Rincewind, who is already afraid of everything. So there's no there's no learning curve there. You know, the the one thing that I always look forward to in a Rincewind book is the luggage, and we barely get any luggage. Yeah. Oh, but what a scene when it when it does turn up. Yes. I mean. Yeah. It's yeah. trunky. Oh, and I could also yeah. see where um, the luggage from a writing point of view might be getting kind of old by this point. Hmm. That I think you, there's only so many jokes you can make about a you know sea chest murdering people. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that they've all been made. Yeah. And I, I liked yeah. this luggage subplot where the luggage becomes a drag queen a lot better than the like one in the Agatean Empire where the luggage finds love. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's one of the I mean it's one of the very few explicitly kind of queer outcomes for any character in any of the books, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. But, uh but like when Terry writes a Rincewind book, he sort of just goes into the Rincewind verse where he just like he's like, I'm going to go into this weird pocket of like jokes that I have it's not going to really mesh with a lot of the rest of Discworld and it's going to have no plot and I'm going to lose like all of my sense of narrative pacing. Uh, but like, this is like the best iteration of that. Yeah. Um, I felt like it was in many ways, the strongest Rincewind book. I mean, obviously I, you know, I'm not an expert on Australia. That's why we have you lovely folks here. Um, so it's, you know, it was hard for me to tell how well all of the location specific jokes actually land. You know, I felt like it was, a as a like collection of fun travel jokes and stuff like that, it, it was pretty, it was pretty solid. On the other hand, I, I couldn't for the life of me pick out any sort of sociopolitical theme that he was trying to get out. It's, it's all Dibbler. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, this book is, like, at least for comparative, like, to, like, something like Jingo, which we just did, is just, like, no thoughts, just vibes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he maybe went, needed a break after Jingo. Mm. Yeah. Like, here's, here's a really heavy, like, this, here's, here's the horrors of war and people stupidly doing things that means they just kill each other. Uh, now let's just write a book where we really want it to rain. I mean... Yeah. Seems good. I, I feel like there's there's almost this sort of um, I don't know how intentional this is, but there's there is also this feeling of homecoming in this book. Uh, mm. I, was, I was thinking about this because I I really like that you you have these questions, these sort of more specific questions, because it prompted me to rethink uh, how I felt about it. And yeah, so you've got you know Rincewind kind of gets to go home to the university in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Forexians who we meet who are not from that place. Uh, finally get a chance to be able to go home and the continent kind of comes home because it finally is healed and, and it rains again there. So there is this kind of, there's there's a theme there, even if it's not like really strong politically or, or necessarily tied to what else happens in the plot. There's also the ongoing, I, I feel like the academia jokes are really strong in this one with the wizards, <laughs> um, especially with the, I mean, we, we've got the you know, designing the platypus by committee, which is really solid. It's very rude to the platypus, but it is very funny. <laughs> it, it's a joke of an animal. It deserves it. Well, they thought it was <laughs> fake we'll when, they, 
when they um first saw them and were like, hey, England, look at this animal. They're like, you've just sewn a duck to a beaver. Like, that's what you've done here. They're like, no, it's real. But, yeah. They are super cute. Um, and, also, and also, it has venom. It does. <laughs> and the it males has have a little spur with venom. Um, and lays eggs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're the greatest... What the platypus is, is somebody got, like, their hands on, like, a video game where you, like, create creatures to survive in the wild and just, like, took all the weird, like, min-max options and is just like, I gave you this. And people are just like, what the fuck? It's doing really well, though. Like, I mean, it's, it's just like a, it's a flappy boy having a nice time. I mean, when you see one, you like, oh, I get it. Like you're you're the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like they're they're awesome, and I've I've never seen one in the wild because uh, except maybe from a long distance. Um, but he, like there's a, there's some great uh, like sort of zoo like nature sanctuaries here, and there's one in I think it's Hillsville um, where they've got a big long tank in like a sort of enclosure, so you can walk along it and see them like eating things and swimming around and having a good time. They they're so cute. They're the best. Well, I have an animal question for um, non-Australians. So, you know wombats, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How big do you think they are? I know how big they are. I'm interested in... Okay. So, not you. Yes. Um, <laughs> they're, like, small dog-sized? Like, like 20, 20, 30 pounds? I, yeah, mm. that's, like, that's what I would say is, like, that they're, like, yay, like yay big? Like, you know, I... Yeah. Like, Hang on, 20, 30 pounds, that's like 10, 15 kilos? Is that like the size yeah, of a cat? Yeah. Is that kind of like what you're... Uh, like the I, size I think of a beagle. cat's about half that size. Okay, yeah. All right, Anna, do you want to say how big they are? They're like... They're hefty boys. Yeah. Like they're, Everything's mm. a boy, apparently. But um, Yeah. Yeah, they, I was shocked by how big <laughs> they are. Like, they are large, and they poop in cubes. Yes. I, I, mm-hmm. realized, I realized that my hand gesture there um, was not going to come across in this auditory medium. Um, but, yeah, that, they are, they are <laughs> large. Um, yeah, I thought they would be, like, yeah, beagle and, size is a good way to put it. But and I only, big. I only know this from, like, following Ursula Vernon on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I, I've looked it up in, in U.S. terms. Uh, 44 to 77 pounds is your average oh. weight of a wombat. That, that is chunky. Well, yeah. And their oh, pouch yeah. is backwards so that when they dig, it doesn't get dirt in it. Wow. They're, su- they're super tough. They're super mm. tough as well. This has been yes. wombat talk. <laughs> Are there even any... I can't... Re- is there a wombat person in the book in that scene? I can't remember. Wombats are mentioned. Like maybe there is. That's why they're on they're my mind. They're mentioned. Oh, they're yeah. Definitely the, mentioned. The, in the bar scene with all of the anthropomorphic animals. That's yes, a wild so scene. <laughs> I would run away so immediately. Good. Our animals are terrifying. <laughs> I had to like, I had to like check the book. Just, I, I just like, I just sat down and that was a scene I had just gotten to, and I was just like, did I open the right book? <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird in like a mm. good way. It's we had a we had a sort of a, a, a not a debate, but we sort of discussed that on the podcast on our episode, and we were like, we think it's based on this. And then we realized um, a listener got in touch with us and said, no, it's probably based on this other thing. We're like, oh, yeah, probably. It. So there's at least two or three different sources for having anthropomorphic animals mm-hmm. in an Australian context. And it was, yeah, it was great. It just has really strong fever dream energy. And I love it. The, the kangaroo is a reference to a, a kid's TV program, right? Skippy. Yeah, yeah. Skippy the bush kangaroo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was, was actually pretty big in the US back in the day. Yeah, I've never watched it. 
Um, they did a remake of it, like I think in the 90s, which was not as successful. But the original one, I think it's from like the 60s or early 70s. And uh, yeah, it's it's your stand- like if you've ever seen Flipper, you know, about the dolphin, <laughs> it's basically that, but with a kangaroo. So the and and the, the perennial joke that we always have in Australian culture is that Skippy can tell you anything just by going and people go, what's that, Skip? Billy's falling down the well. Uh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> and he needs his copy the of the Discworld books lassie. because he's bored. You know, that, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, the Australian lassie, exactly. I love it. Mm. That's amazing. That, that's, <laughs> that's wonderful context for this. Thank you. I guess that is a, an entirely appropriate form for a trickster god to take. Oh, yeah. Mm. Are other themes that we want to pull out? Like legend, be- like how legends are made, I guess, is kind mm. of a theme. Because, like, you have Rintwin running through, like, all these classic Australian stories. Plus, he also has, like, a bit of a not direct but interaction with their version of Ned Kelly and how it's just mm-hmm. kind of, like, people bumbling along and then it becomes this bigger thing, like the story becoming bigger than the actual facts, which I thought was quite a cool running thread through the whole thing. Mm-hmm try to find a thread in there yeah, yeah. to the point where the, like the the city watch or the australian version of the city watch who seem a lot more competent but they're like encouraging rincewind to get into like historic last stands and things like that just to, to make it's, the stories better yeah well it's i mean so much of the a lot of the specific references in the book are all about um colonial australia and, and look i use that term advisedly that's what it was um but colonial australia which sort of built this mythology for itself out of poetry. And there's like, I mean, the whole sequence where he's on the, um, the, the weird small horse um, riding down the hill and he, you know, he's going to sell it to all that. That's all based on one poem, like the man from snowy river, which is a very famous poem from that era, uh, which has been filmed and made into a TV series here. And it's, um, you know, it, that's, there is this Australian mythology that has nothing to do with anything except the people wanting to make an identity for themselves at that time and going, yeah, Australia's all about this. It's about being out in the outback and about farming things and about, and it's, it's kind of being gross friends, in a colonial way. Yeah. yeah and, and mateship is the term that comes up a lot. And that's sort of, it's interesting that this book only touches on that early stage of that. Whereas we see a whole other stage of it happen after world war one and modern Australian history probably calls back to that a lot more than uh, anything that happened pre that so it's a it's a weird it's a, it's a weird view of australia because it feels 20 years old and also like 100 years old <laughs> like hmm. um yeah it's a weird but but out outside of the cities in australia though you do still see a lot of touchstones about this sort of stuff and that's where i grew up in um, a country town and it's yeah it's still like that in some places in terms of what people like to think about themselves and how they think about Australia as a place. So with these Australian mythologies that are that are used liberally across the book, where do you feel it sits on the parody to satire sort of spectrum? I mean, it's interesting. Like, in terms of, I guess I'm veering more towards pop culture. It feels like a lot of the things that break through from us to other countries are things that are already a bit self-parodying so Mm. it's like parodies of parody so when you get crocodile dundee like that is a parody already and then when in here you've got like an actual crocodile and all of that stuff it's just like it's like a mirror reflecting a mirror reflecting a mirror so it's hard to get a firm grasp on that like it's a good question but 
what I found interesting was, is this how we're seen from the outside? And what is it that makes Australian things break through? Is it because like everything in between is much like anywhere else? So it's only the heightened things that aren't really real that end up being picked out as representing what we are. And it's weird how the, the what seems to be the outside view of Australia just really hasn't changed for mm. like 50 years. Like the stuff in this book uh, is very similar to the stuff that you see in that Simpsons episode, you know, from way back at the beginning of The Simpsons, which is like early 90s. Um, so, you know, five, ten years before this book. And and, and and it's all, a lot of it's based on, yeah, like, like you're saying, Liz, like the Barry McKenzie movies from the 1970s, which are about a larrikin character who is a parody of what an Australian is like, written by Australians, and then taken to the UK in the films usually. And so it's, yeah, it's weird. It's very weird. But I think to answer your question directly, I think it's mostly parody with a, a little bit of satire. I was just going to say, like, for example, like, Vegemite is like a weird thing we have. And so that's like become like bigger than it is, I think. Which Rincewind apparently invents and uh, in the middle of a pastiche about waltzing Matilda. Oh, that is a weird, weird <laughs> folk song. Like, like when you dig into the lyrics of it, it's just, I mean, there's just like things that don't quite make sense, but also at the core of it, it is like a guy who steals a sheep and then suicides after the troopers come for him. It's quite, yeah. And it's also like apparently based on a little bit of true story to do with like strikes and things. But yeah, I mean, I, as a child, I was always like, huh, I love how they go. Where's that Jolly Jumbuck you've got in your Tucker bag? I'm like, they know it's in this Tucker bag, but you know, English. <laughs> yeah. I had the impression of reading it that I was only like aware of, like only the surface level of jokes in some ways. Like it was really a strong feeling that I've gotten from some of the, some of the other books. It's like this is referencing a lot of stuff that I have no context for as, you know, an American in 2021. Do you find that with any of his other books in terms of like UK stuff, like English references that you don't Not really get? because I think Partly because, like, I grew up watching a lot of, like, BBC shows on PBS, etc. From, you know, living out in the middle of nowhere. And it was like, PBS was all we got, so it's all I watched. Um, so I watched a lot of, like, Britcoms and stuff like that. So I have a lot of context for those, but I don't have a lot of context for Australia. Yeah, I mean, here and there, there's some very... UK specific references that Terry makes that I feel like you have to have been, you know, a, a child or a young adult at a certain time in history to get a very specific thing that Terry is making a very specific joke about, you know, like the, the thing with the, um, the, the thing with the, the, the fellow in um, masquerade who's very specifically referencing one TV show that people would know. Yeah. And there's also some like extremely specific political stuff that gets referenced here and there that's, you know, very time and location specific and wouldn't have made it across the pond. There's a slight generation gap between Anna, Aaron, and I. And like I think that I I would say that probably like twenty percent to like thirty percent of like the specific like English English jokes don't land for me just because I'm like I don't have that context because I'm like I'm a 90s kid who didn't who didn't get exposed to a lot of that British stuff the thing that I found like 
weird, like out of all the references, because I could have like, if I'd sat down before this book and go, okay, if you were a UK writer going to make fun of Australia, what things are you going to mention? And I could have probably made a pretty accurate list before reading it. The thing I wasn't expecting to find in here was a reference to Hill's Hoists, which is, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know what those are? Mm-mm. I yeah. looked it up on L-Space. But- yeah, I wouldn't have expected anyone outside of Australia, and in fact, not every Australian to know it. So it's a very specific, weird thing. It's um, a, a washing, like for drying your, your washing, but it's like a square shaped with a thing, and then you can crank it and it goes it's like, around and around. It's like a big metal umbrella. Yeah. Instead of having uh, a covering, it's got wires between the pointy metal bits so that you can hang your washing on them. And I it have rotates seen in the wind. people use those. Yeah, yeah my parents have yeah. one. I don't know if it's made by that company. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's like a thing. So, And some of them do collapse uh, when they're not, like, on purpose. Like, they don't break. I mean, they, <laughs> they, they're collapsible, but most of them are sort of rigid. Um, and they, you know, they're such a iconic thing that you expect to see in an Australian backyard, less so in the city where a lot of people don't have room for one. But like I, one of the old house that I lived in here in Melbourne had one. Did uh, you play Goon of Fortune? Up. We did not play Goon of Fortune, <laughs> but we we joked about playing it. Um, that I feel like we should unpack this, Liz. Do yes. you want to explain yes, it or do you want do. me to do it? Uh, well, let's both do it. So let's just cut across. But like, do you know what Goon is? No. So it's Goon like is a, an Australian yeah. slang term for cheap wine. Uh, we have a lot of wine in Australia. A lot of it's very good. Like we're okay. blessed in this country, and we can get a nice bottle of wine for very cheap. But you can I also feel like buy I read really that in the book, wine. actually. Hmm. Um, and goon is yeah, it's like just really cheap, terrible wine, which probably comes in a in a box. So it comes in a like a a, a silver kind of bag with a little <laughs> kind of spout on the end that hmm. is put inside a cardboard box. I'm sure you have hmm. cask wine in, yeah. in yes. the US. So we call that goon. We generally call it. Do you it want to explain the fortune duck. part? <laughs> I have heard that term. That's great. <laughs> or or um, uh, cardboard dough. Oh, that's good. That's a good portmanteau. Very good. Portmanteau. Very good. But you um you get you go to a party. You take your goon sacks, and for goon of fortune, you um peg them to the hill's hoist at various points. And so I've forgotten the mechanics of exactly how it works, but like because you they you just spin, stand at one point and you spin it. And then mm. you have to drink whichever one ends up. Like if it lands in front you. of you, you have to to like drink it for either as long as it, you can, or like there's there's some sort of counter for it. So yeah, it is. And look, dangerous. there's a lot of stories like this in Australia where people never have actually done the thing. This is one I've that done the thing. Yeah. Absolutely does happen, and um, I I have not done it, but I've been at parties where it was happening, and, and you've done this. Yes, so it's yeah. definitely a real. Or it was. I don't know if it would. I don't know if it would it's do it anymore. Like because COVID, I think, because you, it, you, it's well, not just your exclusive green sack. It could just. You well, could yeah. and, and cask wine's kind of gone out of. Like I don't. You don't see it sold anywhere anymore. Really. I can like, get it the, though. You probably could find it. You'd have to look. I feel like also yeah. anyway, box so, wines, at least in the U.S., have like skyrocketed in quality generally. That yeah, mm. actually. So my uncle is a master sommelier, and. Uh, mm. It knows a fair amount about uh, the wines from from your area as well as a lot of other places, and yeah, the the, the uh, boxed wine and canned wine are taking off uh, in part because it's much easier to protect them from the elements in those, and because they're a lot less heavy to ship than glass. Mm. I am just picturing like people who know a lot about wine getting good quality 
goon sacks and playing this as like a tasting method. I love that idea. <laughs> and just like discreetly spitting out in between rounds. Yeah, like, like a fancy. I'm going to play this from my uncle and make him do it. <laughs> yes. I think it would be hilarious. Please keep us posted. I love that. The canned yeah, wine fun. thing is is so real, though. Like, you see it in all the bottle shops here now. I mean, it's still primarily sold in bottles, but you do find, mm-hmm. like, and they're not, they're, they're, if you've ever seen, I think, um, like, soft drinks uh, come in these two. They're, they're like the the smaller, Skinny skinnier ones. cans, mm-hmm. mostly. Mm-hmm. But, like yeah, I, I haven't tried one, but I've heard that a lot of them are good. Or the- Justin, weird. what are your feels on, on, on tins of wine? As somebody who lives in California, the like you know, <laughs> who uh, has parents who live up in wine country, all wine is garbage, sour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair fair I, enough. My, my opinion of wine is pretty much what Ted Lasso thinks of tea. Um, <laughs> it's garbage, purple water. <laughs> I can't believe you just insulted tea. I'm so. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I was all fantastic. Tea is fantastic. Wine is awful. Um, okay. All right. Okay. People, the people, people, my mentions come at me. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't said something ridiculously controversial on this podcast in a while. <laughs> Bad pot. I do that weekly. Complete discography. I'm an angel. <laughs> I'm sure we'll circle back to Australia again. Uh, should we talk about the wizards for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. They are. They are everybody's. D&D party at this point, right? It's like <laughs> you give them one simple task and they somehow manage to go back in time 10,000 years uh through a window where food grows on bushes. And and it's the like and food. the DM is sitting there being like okay, there's a bush. The bush has <laughs> blue cheese on it. Would you like to investigate? And they're like, "No. I'll just eat it." I'd like to eat it. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like There's my D&D campaign. T-Rex, <laughs> and the T-Rex eats someone and then turns into a chicken. Would you like to investigate? No, I'll just eat the chicken. No, I'll just fireball it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so So it's no longer rushing at us? Oh, I had fireball prepared. So this entire wizard's plot, it feels like another no- It feels like another book. Mm-hmm. Mm. That just got like tied into this. Yeah. I look. Yeah, I know. We I see we're coming from with that, but I I sort of I felt that about Reaper Man, like the whole shopping trolley mall <laughs> monster thing it just had yeah. nothing to do with the death plot, That's and fair. they just mm-hmm. were in the same book. Whereas this, I felt the tie made sense. I mean, I think they they kind of the whole island of uh, the god of evolution is a is a weird kind of thing, and I was trying to figure out if that was like meant to be somewhere in particular like was it meant to be like the discworld ver- version of madagascar or mauritius or maybe new zealand like somewhere else where just weird creatures are known to live but wherever I, I, there's I, a I lot of beetles so. also liverpool yeah there's a lot of beetles <laughs> yeah, um, no, what's the island where darwin did all the galapagos so i think there's a little Could bit be. of that but it is sort of one island. It doesn't seem like there's a chain, or maybe there is a reference where there's a chain of them at some point. I can't remember. But that, I mean, that seems like that seems like the, the obvious one. But then I thought, is it somewhere maybe that's a bit closer to Australia, <laughs> where yeah. it would make more sense? But also, it's the disc. So. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think starting in, in sorcery and then you know uh, moving all the way through this book, we it is firmly established that the wizards are always best in the B plot. Yep. Yeah, they're not good at driving. 
anything necessarily, which is interesting. I mean, to refer to the science of Discworld books again, in the fiction, they are the only plot. And they actually do mm. pretty well there. But it's like, be- because it's only half a book, it's like a novella. It's a, sh- it's a short plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Rincewind really steps up in that. And it's, it feels, it does feel like kind of a natural evolution of his character from where we leave him in this book. Because uh, that's what happens to him next is the science of Discworld stuff. And the, the evolution of the wizards from the like, you know, vicious, murderous, scheming wizards to just faculty at Chaos. your local university. <laughs> Which I would consider potentially even more evil uh, <laughs> or at least more malevolent is um i thought i think that that's a really good choice on terry's part it's a lot more fun to read like especially those of us who have come through the the trials of academia or who are currently trapped there <laughs> fair forever rip oh no are you the bursar <laughs> uh no i think i'm ponder yeah <laughs> Aaron, Aaron's miserable enough to be Ponder. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I do like the way that they have... I think it's in this book that they um, they refer back to that. Like, there's a bit like, we used to kill wizards like him. It's like, yeah, we yeah. used to kill wizards like us, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. You remember this. Because it's only, what, 20 years earlier? Um, the amount of time that passes between sorcery and, and by this point is not entirely clear um, for reasons that will be explained more or less in a later book, so I, I won't talk about that. <laughs> but uh, but it's but it's good, you know. It's I like that they acknowledge this weirdness and how the faculty has changed, even though they still have you know they have these. There's that great bit at the start with all of the the weird arcane university traditions. Um, yeah, the keys. Yeah. Oh yeah, the keys and stuff are so good. Like so so deeply Oxford or like Oxbridge is the term you use, mm-hmm. like because it could be either of those. Um, and just, just great. Uh, and, and those traditions have existed for, you know, maybe a thousand years since the founding of the university by Alberto Malik, but, mm-hmm. you know, they still have had this recent change where they're like, well, maybe we won't kill each other anymore. Mostly because Rid not Cully. many of them were left after sorcery and then Ridcully comes in. Yeah. I, I loved the little bit where they, I guess, I think they're later on the island. They realized that actually with the exception of Ridcully, none of them know each other's names either. I, I was going to ask this because I, I find I really enjoy the, the the wizards faculty, but a lot of them I find are a bit indistinct. Like the, mm. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't often yeah. recognize which one's which, apart from the dean who kind of has, you know, he's the most childish <laughs> and petulant one. So you always kind of figure out which one is him. You you kind of got a handle on his personality and you've got Ponder and the Bursar and mm. Ridcully, but the rest of them kind of just sort of. Kind of indistinguishable to yeah. me. Just, do you find I, that? Yeah, absolutely. I mm-hmm. think that is on purpose, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's because they're they're always referred to by these like um, what's the word I'm looking for? These ponderous titles. I feel like uh, yeah, um, where where it's just <laughs> like it's hard to keep track of them, and so they all sort of just like what it sounds like is they just eventually they merge into just one like mass of like squabbling child wizard, <laughs> and that works for me. <laughs> Like, on a level of just, like, because it's, like, there's, like, there is the one who needs frog pills. There's Red Cully. Um, Occasionally, one of them will get a personality trait. Like, I cannot remember which one it is, but one of them is horribly attracted to Mrs. Whitlow in this. The Uh, senior wrangler, I believe. 
the se- mm-hmm. yeah the senior wrinkle i knew there was an s in there somewhere but it's just like <laughs> other than that they're sort of just like a mass of chaotic old man energy tossed in a direction yeah and it it it's kind of soothing because like it's a it's nominally a really big cast when you've got the wizards yeah. and you don't really have to worry about who's in a scene other than ridcully ponder the bursar and the dean um mm-hmm. anybody else is just sort of like part of the amorphous wizard blob and like yeah, their flavor. You, could, you could tell me that like you know the lecture in runes is in one scene and then a different scene in an entirely different place and i'd just be like shrug fine it's cool i feel like their whole thing like even if nothing else happened and it is justified for where they explain to like the the god how sex works or where they don't explain <laughs> oh my god how that works because like yeah. it just goes through so many different things including like oh well we don't really do that and like what do you do instead and he's trying to be like and he's like oh you know we go for runs in the morning and have cold showers which is just <laughs> great and then, and then I love how it's Mrs. Whitlow who like goes and explains the whole concept. How how did her husband die again? <laughs> <laughs> just the implication is just glorious. Because especially with the thing where they they've been all like thinking of her as like you know the pure and impeccable lady, and it's like no, she's like a missus. She's you know been around the block. She's better. Yeah. Yeah, she knows. Yeah. She knows. Well, she speaks like the queen, or she speaks like someone trying to speak like the queen, yeah. which I think makes the whole thing happen. But I mean, the queen has children, so speaking <laughs> speaking of Britcoms, it's got uh, big Mrs. Bouquet energy. <laughs> oh yeah, oh totally. Oof, sorry, that just like puts her and her husband's relationship in the images. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not as much as um, is it? What's the name of the vampire in Reaper Man and her and, oh, his, hu- and his wife? Like they, yeah. they have oh, very, yeah. very definitely, um, yeah, keeping up appearances. <laughs> have you seen the interview they did with the actor who played the husband in that? Where like apparently he was quite rude, and then the interviewer just wrote several minutes worth of waffling cut here in in the interview. <laughs> like so, yeah, it's just great. It's just one of those things that you think about doing, but you never do. Except someone yeah, did. sadly, apparently he's a bit of a jerk, that guy. I think, mm. I think he is dead now, possibly. Oh, well, I feel feel bad about that. But then, you know, he should have been less of a jerk. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so people wouldn't think that. Sorry, I would say bringing a pole on all of this. Yeah, the, the thing that, you know, really defines the wizards for me, especially wizards plus ponder, is this, like, older versus younger faculty thing that I often see uh, where I work, uh, you know, with like well, tradition, tradition versus, versus actual truth seeking. Um, but also, you know, potentially the truth seeking could lead you in the, into the, the wrong place. The, it turns out, for example, that, uh, you know, Ponder is concerned about the butterfly effect and and all of those things and what's the it's the Heinlein story right the cl- clap of thunder oh the sound I of think. thunder yeah. sound of thunder yeah. yeah but it turns out that Ridkell is just blithe assumption that everything will work out you know closed time like loop that's that or closed time like curve whatever it's called the idea that everything will have had happened you know. <laughs> Because yeah. if it is happening, it will. It's because it will have had happened, and we get into the tangled, uh, tangled tenses of of Doctor Who again. Yeah, 
the timey wimey wibbly wobbly big ball yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And you start using words like will and Yeah. The past impossible never tense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's from, uh, what's that from? That's from Red Dwarf. That's a Red Dwarf thing, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, and I, lo- I look, you know, time travel is one of my jams and I love it. And I think that Pratchett actually does a really clever job of most of the times he interfaces with any kind of time travel plot where he doesn't make it that complicated and mm-hmm. he just makes a joke out of the character's complaining about how complicated it seems, but actually it's usually very simple. I think, um, like, without without spoiling anything, like, the, the, the books that have the biggest time travel plots are still the time travel element of it is relatively straightforward, and I think that's very smart. Oddly, mm-hmm. um, the probably the most complex one is in one of the science disc- of Discworld books, the second <laughs> one, which we just read, which still is relatively simple in terms of how time travel paradoxes can work. Um, but is fun. I think the most complex time travel stuff ends up with things with death, where where death can kind of observe all time simultaneously in some undefined way. Uh, I think that that's the most yeah. complex things get, and that's used very sparingly. Mm. Yeah, I mean the clash between the two different timelines in Mort is kind of like I think one of the most is one of the biggest ones, right? And they don't even refer to it like that. It's it's about mm. fate. It's like you've changed fate and destiny but it, it is essentially a, a time travel story about what happens if you change an event that's supposed to take place and it's uh yeah i love that yeah so one of the things that we often do is is pull out you know the equivalent of the the sam vimes boots theory of economic inequality from these books maybe i just missed them but i didn't see like none none really jumped out to me although i noticed that other folks have so let's talk about that well, we've got three people who uh, all pointed to the same thing. So I think yeah. we can cover that first. Yeah. Hmm. Should we talk about Fargo Dibbler? Yeah. Because um, what a character. Like, first of all, like, I thought it was going to be like a, a nice fun time seeing like Dibbler's relative or equivalent. But then like he kind of embodies a lot of like, like, because Australia is a racist country, like it's deeply ingrained throughout. And he embodies the entitlement and privilege that so many people like, because he he like hates the idea of people coming here and taking our jobs. So migrants are bad, but he's also against indigenous or indigenous Forexians as well. So he's like embodies bluntly that sort of horrific attitude that is somewhat accepted, like slightly less so now, but it's still very pervasive. And it was quite a shock and also kind of heartening, for lack of a better word, to see that just put boldly on the page and challenged by a character who is liked. So, like, Rincewind points out that that's horrible. But, yeah, it was yeah, a shock to see that on the page, but also good. Yeah, it felt, in to me, that conversation felt like sort of a, a in parity with the discussion in the last book that we read uh, with uh, Nobby just sort of gently prodding uh, Fred Colin about his sort of unthinking racism. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. Rincewind prods, you know, asks those questions, just, which leads uh, Dibbler down that, that, that these series of logical fallacies in his argument. Mm. And there's, there's this weird, I mean, there's this, this other thing in the book where I think this is emblematic of, of how the Discworld works in general, is that there's no colonization in the Discworld. Like, it's, it just doesn't happen. 
like the, the everybody lives where they live and their countries don't seem to have been created. I mean, there's wars and there's disagreements over land, but they generally seem to be between countries or city states that basically are peers in terms of power and influence and technology. And there isn't this, you know, there, there's no from memory, and look, we haven't reread all of them yet, but there's no Discworld book that really covers that as a theme. And even here in this book, Forex hasn't been colonised by people from Ankh-Morpork. They're all shipwrecks who can't mm-hmm. leave because of the storm mm-hmm. around the place. Yeah. So everybody who lives there who's who's a white person or, or a non-Indigenous person at least is not from, you know, they haven't come here on purpose and set up a colony. They're kind of stranded and have made the best of a bad situation for them. And then the Indigenous people in the book just don't, even show up like they're just they're just barely present um in a way that i think is we we discussed this in our podcast which i think is kind of smart like he's sort of gone well i want to pay respect to their ideas and their culture i don't want to get that wrong and it's Mm -hmm. the book's not really about them so i'm just going to sort of have them off in the background which feels weird but also maybe avoids any big issues with how they're represented as well yeah it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too in a sense sir terry takes the creator but other than that yeah and i mean and and then you've got fergo dibbler who i mean in the late 90s you know we i think we mentioned this again in our podcasts but he he's kind of an embodiment of an attitude that definitely still exists is seen as a minority, but a very loud one. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of people think thoughts along those lines, maybe not as loudly. And, you know, they have a, a feeling of themselves as, or a, a picture of themselves as not racist because they've never interrogated it. And they can point to people who are like Fergo Dibbler and go, I'm not like that guy, you know? Um, and on the public landscape, the person who he most resembles in the terms of the things that he says is probably uh, one of our politicians, Pauline Hansen, and other members of her party who are kind of among the most visible uh, representations of those views. It was just like this weird population here that is like an in-between one that maybe their family came over during the gold rush in the 1850s or they're a few generations in and there's this weird entitlement that they belong here more than anyone else including those who've come here since and those who were here long before. And it's just this strange, illogical, but pervasive thing that's like everyone else should go home or stay away. This is my land when it's not. So, yeah, it's that's definitely the same in the U.S. It's not unfamiliar. Yeah. yeah. It's not unfamiliar yeah. to us, especially recently, yeah, but I also, mean, you know, forever. Yeah, there's definitely a – I'm – as somebody who lives in the American Southwest of like, or like the California and the American Southwest, like that there is similar, if not identical sentiments that will be like risen about people of like Mexican descent. Like even if they're like, you know, you know, people whose family have lived in what is California for, you know, before it was California, uh, you know, will still be subject to the same sort of, racism and like you know this is america not mexico you know it's that sort of rhetoric that gets tossed around rather carelessly mm. Mm. it's better than some of the things we've seen practice yep. do. <laughs> i'll say yep. that mm. it's be- it's not like we're when i was reading eric i'm just like i'm okay i don't want to like you know i i think i'm okay if we never see project try to tackle latin america you know or like you know south america or latin american cultures again i'm just okay if we never do that again 
Same, same with interesting times and uh, Asian cultures where yeah. we ended up with the just pastiche of everything mixed together. Pan-Asian buffet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly, I felt like a lot of the good stuff was in the footnotes this time. I mean, like often the footnotes are reserved for jokes, but I feel like the the footnotes in this one were where some of the more interesting political commentary came in. So there's one that says that um, when pe- when people like Mrs. Whitlow use the term savages to refer to people, they're not trying to suggest that the subjects have a rich oral tradition, a complex system of tribal rights, and a deep respect for the spirits of their ancestors. They are implying the kind of behavior more generally associated, oddly enough, with people wearing a full set of clothes, often with the same sort of insignia, um, which I thought was a fairly solid colonialism call out. Um, mm-hmm. And there's another mm-hmm. one that's not in a footnote, which is um, historians have pointed out that it, it is in times of plenty that people feel like going to war. In times of famine, they're simply trying to find enough to eat. When they've got enough to go around, they tend to be polite. But when a banquet is spread before them, it's time to argue over the place settings. Mm. Which I thought was a... Yeah. They're, they're not long musings like the Vimes Boots theory. But I thought that like both of those kind of made me you know, put the book down for a second and be like, oh, wow, that's that's a phrase. Uh, I feel like we covered the, the broad enjoyment bits. So do we want to pull... Any other favorite details or, or parts from the book? I already said the sex bit, but inc- with extra reference to um, how it's implied that the god tore a giraffe in half at some point, because that's just like <laughs> <laughs> just that a giraffe it is. and a half. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Two halves make a gaping hole. I loved all of the in-text puns that one of the faculty keeps making. To, to, you know, what, what kind of bird stops flying around for a quick smoke? A puffin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I really liked the, the bit where it's making fun of, like, kind of the pop culture um, notion of genetic engineering, where it's like, yeah, you find the bit of the oak tree that says, be inflammable, and then you swap that into the bit of the co- cow that says, be damp, and suddenly... <laughs> um like it really it's yeah that that god's frustration with with trying to make burnt offerings more burnable was yeah very good and, and like it really it's like something out of a pulp sci-fi novel right like you know or fringe <laughs> or like out of fringe or something like that um but i really enjoyed that i also really enjoyed where we see death and death just like drops in on Rincewind a bunch, and it's just like, no, don't worry, you're not going to die. I'm just like saying hello. Oh, <laughs> it's one of the greatest moments of rereading these books. I'd totally forgotten that. And Rincewind's sassy, like, oh yeah, I'll make sure when I die to, I'll choose number one death. Like he's like, I'll check in on you. <laughs> Rincewind's lifetimer too is this like four <laughs> dimensional abomination? Fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love that there there is, like Ritzwood asks, is it true if you see your life flash bef- <laughs> before your eyes uh, before you die? And Death says, yes, that's called living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's uh, some good little cameos of Death in this. I really like that. Also, the Mad Max, the Mad oh Max stuff God. is like, go- like for me that was like that was like my favorite reference of the book. That was just 
<laughs> that was fantastic. Yes. For me, the favorite bits though, like there's just it's I I don't I don't know if it's possible to overstate how exciting and weird and fun it is to see a like a, a fantasy Australia. Like it mm. just does not mm. happen. Like you you see particularly fantasy. Like I mean, Dun- Dungeons and Dragons famously can be boiled down to the idea of magical medieval Europe, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what. A large amount of fantasy is, but then you also do get to see things like Mythic America. There's a whole bunch of interesting um, sort of fiction set in uh, mythical or, or fantasy versions of, of Africa or parts of Asia, and and but you, you just don't see Australia in the fantasy context. And mm. seeing it reinterpreted, even if it is through all these stupid parody kind of reference points from the 70s, um, is still kind of an awesome thrill, you know. Um, and also apparently we're one of the 4X is like one of the few places on the disc world that has some form of democracy <laughs> because <laughs> they elect all their leaders and then put them in prison. Which <laughs> saves time. <laughs> yeah. It saves time. I mean, we, we really need to be doing that now um, in Australia. Uh, I assume you have no knowledge of Australian politics. Why would you? But we have a, a lot of politicians right now who really ought to be, if not in prison, at least thrown out of parliament and it is not happening you can't and say that. So They'll a, launch like like legal action against they you. They will. Well, look. I mean, I think I think if any of those um, gentlemen, if I can use that term, uh, are listening to this podcast, um, I welcome the action. <laughs> like yeah, put that's brackets. They strongly denied doing the thing, and then you're fined for defamation. Yeah, and it's just <laughs> yeah, it's horrendous. Like the level of corruption and and also just like personal just crimes. Crimes, yeah, it's just gross and it's rife, and no one seems inclined to do anything about it. You know, who has the power to do it? So it's kind of like reading this book also is a bit bittersweet from that perspective. <laughs> it was like, yeah, we should, but we don't. It's funny you 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 mentioned like Australia very rarely gets fantasy adaptations and stuff, and like it's funny because it's like I have somewhere on my back shelf, uh, Terror Australis. Which is oh, the yeah. Call of Cthulhu Australia. <laughs> I know people who wrote that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who also wrote uh, wrote Babylon Five, right? Oh uh, yeah, there there is a there is a um there's a there, what like a writer who worked on that oh, eventually wow. worked on B five. That's cool. I don't <laughs> think that's any of the people I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great book. The, when Death asks his library for a list of all of the dangerous creatures in, in, on 4X <laughs> and gets buried in books and then asks for a, a list of all of the non-dangerous creatures and gets a single sheet of paper with some of the sheep written on it. <laughs> the drop bear seed is also very funny. <laughs> yeah. I love that in, even in the Discworld, nobody believes they're real. <laughs> which which seems seems rough. Uh, seems rough. Like, they should get to exist somewhere and people know about them. But that is still- Like, we persist. We persist with those things. There's not too many- There's there actually not too many different ones. The drop bear is still the main one. And then there's, like- I guess there's hoop snakes, but I've heard that those uh, are also referenced in other countries too. Uh, but this idea of just making up stuff. Um, and, uh, most of it these days is exaggeration. Like we, the, there are a lot of dangerous animals here, but we just like to really ham that up. Are the corks um, on the hats a real thing? They were. They were definitely a real thing. You don't really see them now outside of like novelty souvenir shops, but 
they totally were a thing to keep the flies out of your face. There's famously, uh, there's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the UK comedy series, The Goodies from the 70s, but there's an episode where they go to Australia uh, and it's just like three idiots going on adventures. But there's an episode where they go to Australia and they're wearing the cork hats and one of them comes out and he's got um, bottles on all the corks. <laughs> just pulls them out and drinks. That's what Rincewind is referencing. Yeah. So that could be a reference to that in this book, yeah. But, I mean, it's also, they could just be two people coming up with the same joke about corks on hats, which I think makes sense. <laughs> but it's weird that, yeah, Rincewind shows up and invents all the things that Australia is famous for. <laughs> like, leave us something, mate. What, you, what have we got left? It's a very unflattering description of Vegemite, too, by the way. Well, I was confused, too, because at first I was like, using beer as a base for stew is a totally normal thing. Um, and then I was like, later I was like, oh, oh, Vegemite, right? It's look, it is, it's uh, it's delicious. I I don't, I mean, it's so good. Um, it's like, and and it's there are other things that are like equivalent or similar, but they're not the same. Like each one has its own, and and it is deeply cultural. Like in Australia, Mm. we eat Vegemite. Most people, it's it's what we eat growing up. It's what we know. It's the much stronger kind of umami flavor. Mm -hmm. Um. In the UK, it's it's Marmite that most people eat, and um, that's a little bit sweeter and not not as sort of strong a flavour. And it's 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 kind of yeah, you know, it's very different and it tastes the same. But even to me. They, well, they're basically the same thing. There's a, I actually found this is this was great. I found recently a uh, a, a choice article. Uh, choice is a consumer advocacy magazine we have here in Australia. And um, they do they do things like you know they do reviews of like which which are the best mattress to buy or what comparing a bunch of different computer monitors and they did a taste test of um different vegemite style spreads and which ones people could tell and actually vegemite was the one that most people could tell was the real deal um (laughs) but not by a huge margin by by a little bit i actually have a jar of it in my in my kitchen i throw it in i throw it in in stew and stuff to Mm. yeah as you said boost the umami yeah it's a great it's great for that Mm-hmm. But I mostly just eat it on toast. You gotta spread it thin. I think that's a mistake that people make. They they put it on like it's a it's jam or peanut butter. But you've got to do like a really thin layer, un- unless you're like really into it. I'm one of those people. I I remember when we did our uh, last continent episode. I, there was a meme going around about you know uh, if you've ever seen one of those charts about how dark you want your coffee, and it has mm. like you know the it's like a uh, like a, a grid of like from very white with way too much milk in it to very dark and no milk in it and it's sort of a gradients uh they did on like that for vegemite <laughs> and so which one are you and i was like i'm like an eight out of nine <laughs> and people are like you are crazy and i'm like no it's delicious uh and i'll stand by it i love it yeah I, I i studied for a year in scotland and the first time somebody showed me you could like whip it and make it turn white what have what? you have you like if, if you stir it really really hard uh eventually it'll it'll turn very pale that's that wild. Frightening. This is news to me. I'm going to have to try this. Homework. <laughs> Does it taste the same or like it's just changing yeah. texture? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think you're just incorporating lots of tiny little air bubbles into it. I mean, there's there's a long, in, I won't go into it. There's a very long history of uh, Vegemite and different Vegemite alternatives, including uh, a massive misstep um, about 10, 15 years ago where they tried to remarket it and reinvent it. Um, and they did like an alternate version of Vegemite and they held a competition to name it. And the name that won was Snack 2.0. 
and everyone thought this was the dumbest thing. Nobody oh, liked no, it's it. It's like New Coke. And yeah, it was like New Coke. And eventually they, they renamed the alternate version. I think they ended up calling it Cheesy Bite Spread because it had like cream cheese in it. It was like Vegemite mixed with cream cheese, which is like great. Like cheese and Vegemite is actually a great flavor combination. But this did not work out. I will take your word for it. Um, let's let's talk about the drag queens, please, because that that was something that really stuck out to me as something that surprised me at how well it was done. So yeah. Did Priscilla like is is that like a thing that's known in the states? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Or at least within certain cult subcultures. Uh, okay. I just wanted to see if like that had translated or if, yeah. Or so. people who grew up earlier than you, Justin. Okay. Yeah. Now. <laughs> I mean, I knew it because I was a theater kid hmm. and well, other reasons, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, the thing that really stuck out to me was that it, the only jokes that Terry made were at the expense of Rincewind and not any of the drag queens. Yeah. I really appreciated that. Plus getting the luggage involved in such a hmm. like in-depth way. I think also it was really good. Especially like the, 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 the luggage is like opalized now. <laughs> Just totally a real thing uh, that happens to fossils. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get the, the infiltrates. Yeah, there's a great, um, the really huge example is an opalized elasmosaurus in the uh, Adelaide Museum, which is amazing. It's like a dinosaur skeleton. It's not a dinosaur, it's a marine reptile, but it's like that. And it's made out of opals now, Wild. basically. It's great. <sighs> so good. Um, but yeah, so, so glam, so be- bling. Did you want to talk a little bit about the dreaming too, Ben? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it, it's um, th- he never uses the name the dreaming, but the 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 creator spirit stuff um, and a lot of the the drawings becoming animals, becoming people, st- sort of stuff that's happening at the beginning of time for Forex, the continent. It draws really heavily on that understanding of um, the dreaming, which is a concept in Aboriginal cultures. And I say cultures because there are hundreds of them and the dreaming is like one English word that has become, you know, meaning this collection of different ideas that are similar, but they're all distinct and every culture had their own name for it. But it's it's a really interesting um, worldview about where the world came from, how it was created, um, how people and animals were created, and also how you should live your life. Like, it, it's all tied in together. And, you know, we we get a little bit of it. Like, as a, as a white person growing up in Australia, like, I'm exposed to a, a little bit, you know, when I was growing up in that we would hear s- dreaming stories about the rainbow serpent or about uh, Tiddalik the toad or about, you know, these different stories that all come together. But when I say they all come together, like, they're not all from the same cultures and we would hear the ones from, you know, the culture that was local to us. So I grew up in far northern New South Wales um, and the the local peoples there were the Bundjalung and we heard some of their stories, but then there are some that are kind of widespread. And so it's, I feel like he really kind of put some effort into getting it in a way that maybe he didn't with some of the other cultures that he's kind of, a, I don't well, appropriated might be a strong word for some of what he does, but you know, that, that ends up in the, Pestiched, I think, um, is a decent verb. That is a good word. So I, this feels less like a pastiche and more like a kind of a, this stuff is really cool and I want to put it in my book, but I'm just going to put a bit of it in and I'm going to try and be respectful. And you can kind of see 
that he has made an effort to understand, and even though he hasn't put a lot of Indigenous cultures from Australia in there, the bits that he has got are kind of accurate, you know? Like, the, the returning boomerangs are toys. Like, you, you don't use a returning boomerang to hunt kangaroos. You use a massive war boomerang or hunting boomerang, which has one really long wing and one short one, and it's really sharp, mm-hmm. and you throw it and it kills somebody. Like, it's- yeah, you know, and you can also use it as, as like a kind of a spear or a club or something. So they're they're, yeah, I, it's it's a cool concept, and I think he does a a good job of using it without being disrespectful. And that's really reassuring, yeah. Especially having covered, I think I think broadly the worst is behind us at this point in terms of cultural pastiches. But yeah, we've covered a fair number of kind of questionable choices at this point and you know hearing that you know by this point um you and and um jingo also pleasantly was a pleasant surprise i think to most of us um i mean it's not we 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 kind of felt that way too and then we we did have some listeners give us some feedback that like if you are a jewish or a semitic person uh, it's not great, like the way that the peoples are described are pretty awful caricatures. And we're like, okay, well, this is like a bit of a blind spot for us where we didn't really cop that at the time. But I but I agree, like in general terms, it's it's pretty good. And in this one, I think the worst thing that happens is he has a bunch of white folks go back to the beginning of time in the version of Australia and mess with the creator's design. And it's like, yeah, he didn't make it. The platypus is not a cool native, like- interesting animal that just evolved because it's awesome. It was created by a university committee, which is a funny joke, but also it's a little bit rude, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, sort of on that theme, are there any other things that we just sort of want to complain about and then set set free? I sort of kind of wish this was like two separate novellas. That That's just like, that's just my feeling with the book, but like Terry doesn't do that, but it's just like these don't really feel like they're too they like they like they overall mesh very well um that but that's just like that's my vibe i really enjoyed reading it but i think that there was too much of it um that i think that it would have been funnier if it had been condensed like not necessarily down to the size of eric but you know down to not keeping the same size as jingo certainly um that if it had been um, a little bit shorter, I think that it would have been a more coherent read, more more along the lines of where, where you could kind of like, you know, sit down and polish it off in like two or three good sittings. As an editor, I don't, like, as an, and I don't officially work on book editing, but there's not anywhere clear that I would cut because to make it, in my opinion, a better book, you would need extensive rewriting yeah. and it would need to be quite a different book altogether. And there's so many things I love about the the individual pieces. I'm not sure I'd be willing to sacrifice that for a better plot mm. or something that rockets along a bit more nicely. So it wouldn't be like, it's, it's definitely a flawed book in my opinion, but I also don't think it's easily correctable. And if it was, it'd be a whole different yeah, for sure. text. I, I was okay. just going to say, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, it'd be yeah. very, very hard to edit down, but it'd be it'd be interesting to to read what that other book would be, though. Mm. Absolutely, mm. it'd be good. I reckon, just in a whole different way. Yeah, I mean, I sort of like I, I, all my expectations of plot go out the window when Rinspen is involved. 
Yeah, his his entire driver is to run away from whatever plot Terry throws at him and to stumble into the plot anyway. I mean, he he was notoriously rude about Rincewind by around this time <laughs> in his career. I think he described him at one point as um, having the, like, Rincewind's, what did he say? Rincewind's purpose was to meet more interesting people. And yeah. uh, I'm like, that's that's rough, man. And I think- I think he gets better. I think he gets over that. I think this is him sort of, you know, mm-hmm. when he comes back to Rincewind now, it's either as a very minor character or he's much more interesting. Like he's mm-hmm. he's got a bit more yeah. of the uh, early kind of nous that he has in the first couple of books. Yeah, this is the most interesting Rincewind as like a character has it probably ever been, but that's because he's like going out of his fucking mind. Um, throughout this entire book well, he's seen some things so he's had a chance to grow as a character you know up until this point yeah i also yeah. didn't like sir terry's dig against pineapple on pizza i thought that was very oh rude. yeah no i was like i was like thinking of like oh there's gonna be a crime here <laughs> wait i mean oh, look I- this is yeah it's a big debate <laughs> here as well what's with the prawns are we known for having a yeah, lot of don't prawns you know about- you know about this list? This is from the famous um, famous advertising campaign in the 80s where Paul Hogan, who played Crocodile Dundee, um, invited the world to come to Australia and we'll chuck a couple of shrimp on the barbie for you, which is not something we, we don't call them shrimp. They put that in because they didn't think anyone would use the word prawns because that's, mm. what, you know, that's what we have locally and that's what we call them. But, um, yeah, it was that's, – I think that's where it comes from. I know about chucking another snag on the barbie. I've just never heard – shrimp or prawn as like a major australian thing i actually thought it was more of like american thing well look i grew up in a prawn fishing town (laughs) this is not a joke (laughs) this is for real and um we have something that i would have expected to show up in the book like there were a few australian things that i did not that weren't there and i'm like why is this not there um but we had um uh we we have one of the big things. If you're not familiar with this, in Australia, a lot of small country towns have a big statue of a thing, but much, much bigger than in real life. And they just call it the big whatever. And there's there's like heaps of them, heaps of them. It's like, you know, in, in America, you have like the biggest yeah, ball yeah, of twine have, in Minnesota or whatever. Oh, my God. It's yes. like the Midwest. Yes. Yeah. We we have that it's around the country Australia. Oh, and the, the town that I grew up in, while I lived there, when I was growing up there, they built one and it was the big prawn. And uh, some people did not like it. And it and it was a central feature of- There's a documentary about it called Big Things. And uh, it was one of the ones because it was very controversial. I love it. People did not like it looking at them. I have love you heard, Have you, um, so, wait, have you yeah. heard about Blucifer? Blucifer? No. <laughs> oh. So, oh, yeah. um, at the Denver International Airport in Colorado, um, there is a statue. It is of a Mustang. Completely anatomically correct. Um, completely. It is huge. Um, it is blue, has red glowing eyes, <laughs> and notably killed its creator. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wow. I, if I recall correctly, with said piece of anatomically correct anatomy. Yes. Oof. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole list, and they're mostly yes. very mundane things in Australia. Well, it depends on if you think pineapples and koalas are mundane. Well. I mean, they're, they're normal. They're not evil. Like, they're not painted blue with red eyes. <laughs> yeah. Their creators. Oh, my God. That's amazing. We're sorry, we've just it seen is- the picture of Blucifer, yeah. and, I, and we are quite- a, That is not- That okay, vein. Okay. <laughs> um, it is 32 feet tall. And this is from- like, we're, we're from a country where we're used to big things. That is, that is, a, that is a big thing. <laughs> 
Um, if you if you look up the big prawn, by the way, uh, you will see the modern remade one, which is actually kind of cool. The original one, um, which they built the new one out of, uh, was on top of like a, a service station, like a like a, a petrol station. I don't know what you call them in the a gas station. <laughs> I had to think yeah. about what do you call it in the US so I can be clear about this. It's a gas station, um, and it was- I've seen this before. Was not yeah. popular. It was really hot on the inside. You could go inside it, and it had like um, it had like it was made of concrete, but you could go inside. It. it was really hot, and it had like these posters framed on the walls of like the history of fishing in Ballina, which is the town I grew up in, where it is. Um, and yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. I unapologetically love it. It's got like googly eyes. Oh, I love it too. I love it too. But the it, the new one is much nicer because it has like a tail and you can just look at it and take cool photos in front of it. Whereas the old one, like, yeah, they tried to go, go inside it. And it was staring right at where some people lived, <laughs> which made them deeply <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> it, it's interesting that, you know, with, with Rincewind and also the, the wizards invading Australia, that he didn't make any references or jokes or anything like that to rabbits or myxomatosis or cane toads or anything like that. Yeah. Mm. I was I was trying to think about this like what other things did I could I kind of expect to see? I mean a lot of I mean a lot of the things that he could have done political commentary about are totally absent. Again, because you know Forex is not a colonized place. It's a place where people end up by mistake. And um you know that's that's where a lot of the if it was going to be those those meaty kind of button moments you're talking about, you expect it mm-hmm. to come out of that. Um, so yeah, it's it's yeah. I was surprised there was no big things. Big chapter on how the toilet water flushes in the opposite direction. <laughs> you know, well, we don't even know the if they have flushing toilets, right? In Ankh-Morpork. Yeah. pork. So who knows? There should have been the Emu War. I think we should have had the Emu War. That that, oh, yeah. that was the thing we missed, and I was like, I was a little sad. I'm just like. Ugh. Give me, give me like militaristic emus. Yeah, because they won. Like that's just yeah. But and they had the emu in the Mad Max bit, and I was like, here it comes. And then no, it didn't. But maybe it was when it was written. Emu war was less known about. Like maybe it was a little bit pre Wikipedia, where it sort of like got its resurgence of notoriety. Mm-hmm. Any references to other pieces of Discworld that just sort of jumped out at you? Obviously, we have another Dibbler. We've we've had many, many Dibblers in the various Rincewind novels. I think this is one of the stronger ones in that um, he is a disturbing character. And sort of the the grand unified theory of Dibbler as well. Yeah, yeah. Like we get we get like a list of Dibblers who are like like ones that we haven't seen but are like other cultural adaptations and i i personally believe that all at like different versions of dibbler should be disturbing in their own yeah i way. i felt like this is one of the best dibbler likes um specifically specifically because of the bits with the you know horrifying racism etc because that's exactly who actual dibbler is too you know that um you know, d- Ank more pork dibbler is out there railing against the Kalachian immigrants, um, etc. And you know, having the having that kind of attitude carry over into the dibbler alike, I felt make it made it a lot stronger. Yeah, I mean, mm. he is he is in many ways the best and worst 
of the other dibblers. <laughs> um, as, but as, as some people pointed out, one of the things that also links him to the politician I mentioned earlier, Pauline Hanson, is that famously before she became a politician, she ran a fish and chip shop. <laughs> so there's a, there's a link there too. I think this might be the first explicit in more than one way is uh, um, reference to an amusing vegetable as well, uh, which we'll see <laughs> later in The Truth. <laughs> you might be right. I, I kind of feel like it's most notable for its reverse effect in that other books will continue, like often refer to Forexian stuff mm-hmm. after this one um, in lots of little ways. But like there's a, in one of the later books, there's like, oh, every barman is from Forex. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is now Australia's in the Discord. It's great. I mean, it's yeah. mostly great. You yeah, know, it's been kind of unlocked from its, you know, meteorological prison. Mm. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like someone completed a big quest and the big new DLC has dropped for the Discord MMO, you know, like now you can go to Forex and have adventures there. Yeah. Oh, did you ever play around in the Discworld mud? Only a, only a tiny bit. Mm. I d- it was We did not have good enough internet in the country in Australia back when it was big in the like, 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, w- I would like to. I've read about it. I would love to give it a <laughs> bit more of a go if it's still running somewhere. I think it actually might still be running. That would be fun. Of course, I'm reading reading this book, where I used to live in Montreal, there was, weirdly enough, a Australian meat pie shop down the road that had, you could get your, like, meat pie with peas and mashed potatoes and sauce of some description. Was it in the soup? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, oof. That's a very Adelaidean thing. It, it was. Le- it was. Yeah. I think the peas were less soupy and it was more just like mushy peas. Oh mm-hmm. uh, no, we've got a pie floater. Is like where it's in like a pea soup and you put the pie in it and then you put the sauce on top and then you eat it while you're drunk. <laughs> is it like a is it like a parsley sauce? Is that what that is, or is it a different uh, kind of sauce? No, I, tomato sauce. Oh, okay. It was. I was. I think. Yeah. I think a slightly, slightly less drunk food version. But I still. I really enjoyed going there now and then and. You know, rereading this book, I was like, oh, fuck, I could go for one of those pies. <laughs> I mean, look, I, when I was rereading this uh, for our podcast, I think I'd, I'd only, I've been vegetarian now for about three or four years. And it was, so it was fairly, relatively new when we read it. And I was like, oh, man, now I really want a meat pie. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> There's some really good plant-based ones now, though, like that. That's um, true. Yeah. Yeah. 7-Eleven has them here now for some reason. If you just they drop it in some vegan soup, things. you won't even know the difference. <laughs> That's true. Sauce on top. That's true. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to do it. Anything else we want to pull out from Discworld references, things? Um, I think just the stuff from the faculty, mm. like the, the titles just get better and better from this point yeah. on. Like the egregious professor of cruel and unusual geography. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> it's one of the greatest. I, which is a double pun because it also references the Regis professors, which yeah. are, are appointed by the, the crown. Just on, like, a little just, like, general thing, I do like Ponder getting, like, the POV, like, <laughs> like sort of, like, deuteragonist uh, elevation in this one. Hmm. Like, just, you know, getting, like, I do like the promotion. He's a he's a fun sort of, like, progression of, like, Discworld thought. Mm-hmm. He, he's matured from computer nerd to, like, functioning the only rational person in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it was yeah. um, it was also kind of fun seeing you know 
when the wizards all slip back into like priest, you know, sorcery era wizardry for just at first, just an instant mm-hmm. there, Ponder is not immune to that effect either. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> yeah, when he becomes old, it's just like he becomes like every other wizard. Yeah, it's in the DNA. Yeah, yeah. that there was that whole bit about you know. Um, we used to, we used to always say never trust a wizard over sixty five, and then they say what happened? Well, we all got over sixty five. <laughs> <laughs> other other cleanup bits. I thought it was very interesting that there's no antagonist in this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from you know the cartoonishly malevolent wildlife. That's not uncommon in Discworld <laughs> books, though. Is it? We've had a fair number that haven't had. A clear antagonist. Yeah, there's not really an antagonist in Mort, for example. Like, there's no, you know, there's there's like little scenarios that have a bad a bad guy, so to speak. But really, it's about Mort messing up and trying to hide it from Death, who has got his own thing going on. And then they they do have a conflict, but neither of them is really the villain. Maybe the real antagonist is disease, because if the librarian hadn't gotten sick, they wouldn't have mm. gone there. He wouldn't have gotten the thing, started the drought, and oh. the whole thing wouldn't have been a problem. So a book maybe, for our times. Maybe diseases are bad. Well, maybe they're good. Oh, we we haven't said this yet, but Forex is a reference to a beer. <laughs> oh yeah, a beer that very few people outside of Queensland, which is one of the states in Australia, actually drink. Um, it's like the sort of local beer in Queensland. But um, it's the local, like, it's the local cheap beer that everybody drinks when you're just drinking a beer and you're not trying to have a nice time. Um, whereas, you know, in Victoria, we have Victoria Bitter, which kind of serves the same kind of um, niche. And in New South Wales, we it was Foster's. Um, and there's only a couple of Australian big beer brands that have made it overseas. And Foster's is the big one. I always am alarmed. The one time I went to the UK, I was like, why does everybody talk about Foster's here? Nobody I know drinks this stuff. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of the same with Forex. I can remember the last time I saw a Foster's. I didn't realize they drank it in New South Wales. I just thought it was like a pretend Australian beer that we send elsewhere. No, but if you if you go into a pub in, in New South Wales, you won't see VB on the, it won't be a VB tap. There'll be a Foster's tap. And likewise, mm. if you go to Queensland, there'll be a Forex tap um, alongside the other, you know, fancier or different beers. But the sort of standard just drinking beer is different in each state. Mm. Any other cleanup bits? I, I do want to know, like, how much of this do you think is real Australian culture and how much do you think he just made up? My assumption was that it was entirely pop culture as opposed to authentic. Mm. Okay. Good. There's some real stuff in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the like poems and songs and things like that. That that felt real, but the stuff that he plays off as as the telegraphs as jokes to me said like, you know, this is Crocodile Dundee, which is you know, played for laughs. But we do talk to kangaroos, so that that bit is real. Um, I mean yeah. you have to, otherwise they eviscerate you, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a Castle Warriors of Four, but they didn't copper mention, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, do they mention the mower in there? Is there a mower in, in the I'm not sure. Big, I saw that in our show notes, but that might have been, um, I guess, Fury a- drawing a comparison. Because that's, that's a New Zealand thing, isn't it? Yeah. I thought maybe there's a mention of, like, a big bird on the on the island of the evolution. I was- um, the orangutan turns into a great orc at one point. But that's- oh, yeah. That's like a mower, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, they used to fall down holes and die. Like, you know. 
I was surprised that with all of the like evolution jokes with the god of evolution, it actually didn't like go hard on the whole like everything's a marsupial thing. <laughs> that's that's true. Which is like one of those things that is fascinating to me about both Australia and New Zealand, like wildlife wise, is that like the places where all these ecological niches would be filled by other stuff are just filled by one type of thing that has just diversified. Like, what's the joke that's like, uh, Australia, you've got nice animals, thanks, it's got pockets? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love yeah. it. My, ki- my kids are a big fan of the quokka, which I guess is from an uh, island off of... Rottnest. Rottnest Island, yeah, they're so cute. Yeah, they're so smiley. Yeah, which probably means they'll bite the crap out of you. <laughs> I, I mean, I personally love their defense mechanism of flinging their babies at the pursuing predator. <laughs> Have a snack. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't know mm. that. That's that's kind of either. But great. I, my my question on like the how much is real versus how much is not is like the the linguistic bits. I mean, they're a little bit old fashioned, but I think, and I think I said this in our episode, is that in the country. People do still talk like that. Uh, and like, you know, where I grew up, where I grew up less so because I grew up, the place I grew up in was like a, Ballon like a tourist town. It's not a big mm-hmm. place, but it's it's a bit touristy. So, we're not, it's not as ochre. But I have lived in smaller country towns in more central Australia as well. Um, and yeah, people, people still talk like that. Like some of those traditions are still there. Um People do actually say, I, I know I said at the start, people don't say crikey. People do sometimes still say crikey. <laughs> like, that was not something that um, he put on the Crocodile Hunter. You know, like, he he really did say that from a genuine place. Um, and we still use a lot of slang that is, it, it, the, the historical sort of basis of it is when, um, when we had, like, the initial round of colonization, there were a lot of lower class Irish and English people coming as convicts, but also just, you know, to make a better life for themselves. And even in a lot of the waves of, English uh, and Great Britain colonization that came after that, a lot of those people were from lower class um, jobs. And I mean, that's how my family got here. They were Irish migrants in the sort of early 20th century. And um, we we brought a lot of the slang of that time with us. And then it's kind of frozen in a similar way to, you know, some linguists talk about American English um, or some forms of it, at least being closer to what English was like in England at that mm-hmm. time. Um it, it, Australia's kind of got this history now of kind of weird amalgamation of Cockney rhyming slang and other weird stuff. And it's still there, you know? And we really do say some outrageous things. And we love it. We also kind of ham it up a bit, I think. And shortening words that don't need to be shortened. Like, there's often, mm. like, like things that will end, like, arvo, or, like, anything's in an O sound. And it, it just don't need to be shortened. Uni. Yeah. Names names get that all the time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, I think what I picked up on earlier was one of you said Jurekin. Or like it's like like if I had to yeah. transcribe it, it'd be like D apostrophe J A slash R K and it was just like like I was like I'm amused. In South Australia, like where I grew up, the one that we're apparently known for is heaps good, like describing things as heaps good, which I didn't mm. realize was a strange thing until, um, yeah, coming over here. And also like different shortenings in other places, like a Parmigiano, like in Adelaide is a Parmi, 
and here is a Parma. So I got like laughed out of my workplace one time when I was like, I'm going to go get a Parma after work. And they're like, what? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like Parma, which doesn't make sense to me. But yeah, there's just even like between states, there's tons of fights over linguistic stuff. Like, yeah. (laughs) The big one being uh, potato cakes. Are they potato cakes or potato scallops? They are neither. Um, like, neither makes sense. A cake is a specific thing and a scallop is a specific thing. They're just fried potatoes. It's 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 basically, uh, like, potato, like, mashed up, hammered into, like, a flat, round thing and then deep fried. And it's delicious. Hash brown. Uh, no, cause, well, it's like a, not if quite you got a tater tot and, like, squashed it flat so it was, like, a plate shape. Hmm. It'd be like that. disc? Maybe, but yeah, a scallop is a yeah. seafood and a cake is not deep fried. Well, so. And, oh, and yeah. scallops scallop potatoes, potatoes are their own thing, at least here. Right. Oh, yeah, we have those too, and that, that's different. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, and we also measure drinks differently in different states as well. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I learned that like, I did a, like a bar course when I finished uni, uh, when I finished high school, was before uni, and, and uh, they, that was one of the things they tried to teach us was what all the drink. Like what all the glass sizes are in different states because they have different nicknames. Yeah, you end up with a hell of a a pint, so it should be a standardized unit of measurement depending on what state you're in. But yeah, sometimes it's an imperial pint, and sometimes it's not, and then there's pots, and then there's schooners, and you end up with a tiny beer that's really expensive when you think you're getting something else. But yeah, just- <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and there's no yeah na or na yeah in this book, mm. but that might right. be. I mean, which was around then. It was around in the 90s, but I think it's become more of a thing now. Like, I, I just, this is this is true. A friend of mine makes badges, or someone I know makes badges, like uh, like nice enamel ones, and they've done ones that say, yeah, nah, and nah, yeah. And you, so you can pick which way around you want to go. And they don't mean the same thing, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Yeah, they're, they're, they're too- yeah this, is, this is actually just sort of increasing my, my belief that Australia and the Midwest have- it's just sort yeah. of transposed. Yeah, it's really because yeah, oh, no, yeah. and no, yeah, are very much a, a Midwest like thing. I think there's, well, there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, so you've got big things and you've got yeah, nah. So it's basically the same. And like the <laughs> and like, I don't think that no worries as a phrase specifically is a Midwestern thing, but the vibe is really a Midwestern thing. Like you could you could definitely <laughs> think of like a Minnesotan being like. No worries. Hmm. Yeah, well, Luke in the yeah. first episode of the OC says it, and I was like, oh, that's a weird thing for an American to say. He's like, oh, no worries. And I'm like, mm, some worries. <laughs> yeah. A few. One a worry. Mm. Luke-sized worry. Are there, are there any other things that were baffling to you that you want to ask Australians about? Do the toilets go the other way around? <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> But that is a thing. Like the water <laughs> swirls in a different direction because of no, that's, um, the equipment. That's a thing, isn't no. it? It's a thing in the ocean. It's not a thing at the small scale that happens in your toilet. No, I'm pretty. <laughs> but sure I'm it so is. glad I'm... that you asked. <laughs> in the spirit right, I'll of inquiry. <laughs> yeah, we'll look it up later. It's not really true. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Like, what is what? What are some like? No, I think like anything I have would just be too long. I, I think the other question is, how much do you actually fear the wildlife? Oh my god! Um, 
like depends like it's more like spiders and things that i think are scary and you don't go into long grass because there could be snakes but they, someone came into our school to give us like a here's how to be safe um in australia kind of talk that i think about every time i go anywhere like they're like don't go to the beach and pick up those cone shells because sometimes the creature's still in them and they fire po- poison darts so don't mm. pick those up if they're still alive and they're also like always shake your shoes before putting them on because if there's a white dip in it and it bites your leg then you might have to slowly get it amputated like progressively more and then they told a story about a woman who had this um and always shake your bite helmet because sometimes a spider will climb into your ear um so oh, there's just God. that kind of stuff i can't actually this is this reminds me though that one of the things we're all most afraid of is magpies and i was about to ask about those. this book at all uh, yeah, aren't they just complete assholes or something? They're not. They're just very their territorial. Mm. Uh, unlike they can be very quackers, apparently. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they can. You can make good friends with magpies if you treat them nicely. But they're mm. not. They're not the same as um, European magpies. They're a totally different species. They're just mm. given the same okay. common name because they're black and white. But they have a beautiful song, um, mm. and uh, they're great. But they are real scary. I've been bitten by a pelican. Pelicans are big. Yeah, it we got my whole arm in its, in its beak. Oh, my gosh. It was quite frightening. I was holding a hot yeah. dog and it wanted that, <laughs> but my arm was attached to it. So. I've seen a video of one swallowing a cat, or at least yeah, no, getting I've, one in I've, its mouth. That's pretty intense. I've seen intense. One, one eating a seagull. It's just- <laughs> the, uh, I, for me, the you know, I, I again, I grew up in- One of the houses I grew up in was right next to a nature reserve, and I would go walking out in there. And I, I wasn't scared, scared, um, but you, had to, you just grew up knowing that, okay, the- Things here are dangerous, and they're dangerous in a different way. It's not like if you grow up in like Finland or parts of you know America or Canada where you might see a bear, <laughs> like, and that's like, well, then I'm just I'm 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 fucked. I'm gonna die. It's gonna kill me. Uh, it's more like the thing you won't see is gonna come and bite you, and you're gonna die. So you have to mm-hmm. keep an eye out for them. But they they don't really want to bite you. Like they, it's it's a waste of their energy and resources. Mm-hmm. So it's usually not too bad. Just shake your shoes and bat your helmet and. You'll be right. I grew up in central California where about 80, 90 years ago, someone made the genius idea of uh, importing a whole bunch of eucalyptus trees, um, which grow extremely well in the California climate and also are highly explosive, I guess would be. Extra (laughs) flammable. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that that has caused occasional problems. That and the whole biocide thing that they drop around they, they them to prevent other things from growing koalas to uh to eat the eucalyptus trees yes koalas to eat the fire koalas would die in california yeah. that's what i don't think. they yeah, all have fun. chlamydia too or something <laughs> most uh, of them have chlamydia. Problem. not all of them but just most yeah. of them yeah it just the whole thing reminds me there's a sequence in the in the douglas adams book last chance to see which mm. is where he goes to visit like all these different animals that are going extinct and he goes to see a snake a poisonous snake expert before he goes to the island of komodo because it's got more poisonous snakes per square meter than anywhere else on earth and they and he's like a, i can't remember if it's in melbourne or sydney but it's, it's an australian guy that he visits in australia and he's just like what do i do if i get bitten by a snake and a deadly poisonous snake and he goes will you die like don't <laughs> don't get bitten and then and then he's just really disdain like he hates them and he's like what about what about the sea he's like oh no don't go in the sea it's just full of more poisonous things and yeah. Like, yeah like the stonefish is real they, i think they mentioned the stonefish in the book and the stonefish oh, so is totally scared of real those. yeah like, it looks like sand a, just chilling out it's waiting a big for, spike for on death it. to happen yeah and that's that little news. that little teeny tiny octopus too right 
Oh, the, oh, blue, the blue ring octopus. octopus. Yeah. That picture so does the round sometimes of someone being like, look at this beautiful octopus. And everyone's like, everyone from Australia is like, is that person dead now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Last I saw, that person was not in fact dead, which astounded Shocked. me. Yeah, because it's like got its blue rings going, which is that's like run away, like mm-hmm. write your will, like go to a hospital. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of the deadly animals are very, very beautiful and um mm. And delightful creatures, as long as you don't hassle them so that they bite you. <laughs> so just just don't do that. <laughs> just don't get bitten. Mm. And don't go in the sea. Okay. I, I do have one Australia question that is like, so like there's a couple Ned Kelly references in the book. Mm. Like, okay, for modern Australia, like what kind of cultural figure is Ned Kelly, actually? Oh, he's huge. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, he's there's de- like it's portraits divisive. of him everywhere. Like his armor is in the State Library of Victoria, like in their permanent collection. Like some of our most famous artists have painted him. Like he's very much in the digital. Like when was the last that they're always making movies? Like the last one was like 15 years ago, had Heath Ledger in it, and so we're about due for another one anytime mm-hmm. now. But I think they might be making one actually. <laughs> Uh, from memory, it was they're a making TV one about the emu war. It's being written by John Cleese. Yeah. Oh, well, I was excited up until you said that. But Taika Waititi, on the other hand, that would be a good. Oh, yeah. great! Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, oh. it's because it's like I I know Ned Kelly just because I like weird true crime bullshit, and I'm just mm. like I have no idea. Well, like, what do normal people think? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> Jagger because, played him once, even. Yeah, he. I mean, he is he is emblematic of a lot of themes that run through kind of Australian. Uh, or you know, post-colonial Australian identity, but it's mm-hmm. um, it, he's an interesting figure in that at the time, you know, he's an Irishman being persecuted by the English, predominantly English authorities of because they arrested the Australian his colonies at the time. Didn't do. Right. Yeah, and they would just shoot you. Like this is this is from a period in history, and it's not equivalent. And and I don't mean to draw a direct equivalence, but this is from a period in history where Irish people were not considered like the same race as other white people. Like mm-hmm. they they were shot, and and I mean even up until the sixties in America, in a not in America, in the UK, people would put signs in their door that would say "No blacks, no Irish." Like they they had the a similar level of racist kind of stuff going on in some places, in some cultures. It's not equivalent. I want to stress that. But, you know, that's the kind of attitude that the Kellys were facing. And that's kind of been adopted in unfortunate ways by some aspects of Australian society who see that, you know, they have that kind of white persecution complex. And they're like, yeah, see, like, what happened to Ned Kelly? Like, which well, just as bad for us. And you're like, no, it's really not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, neither historically nor now, particularly not now. But so there's an aspect of that which is unfortunate. But like you can go like our um, our state library here in Victoria has his armor on display. You can go and see it. It's real. It's cool. <laughs> like, but also you look at it and go, yeah. "It was hot. It's it's hot in Australia. How did you move yeah. around? <laughs> um, move very far." I particularly like the film Reckless Kelly. This is like Yahoo Serious' second film after Young Einstein. If you've not seen either of those, those are really weird bits of like 90s Australian pop culture. Young Einstein is usually referred to as a classic. I have not revisited these recently, by the way, so I cannot vouch for how well they stand the test of time. But Young Einstein was particularly weird, uh, even by Yahoo Serious' standards. And I, But I remember really- liking Reckless Kelly, the, the kind of follow-up, which has a lot, similar to this book, has a lot of mashups of Australian kind of isms and Australian pop culture stuff. 
mm-hmm. uh, and I, I dug it. Apparently, water really does throw the other way in Australia. That's not, no, come on. We're going to have to have an argument about this. All right. We'll just do a whole episode on that. Yeah, okay. That's our next episode of our podcast. <laughs> okay. It's just about the way that the toilet water goes down the drain. Should we move on to our silly ratings? Sounds good. Mine's extremely serious. Yep. I don't know what you mean. Mm. But, you know. mm. Anna, how would you rate this book? I would give it six out of eight legs on a particularly deadly spider. Uh, Liz? Um, I give it 798,251 out of 1,050,000. 56,006 opera house tissues. Um, for the record, that is not a silly made-up number. That is the number of tiles that make up the opera house. Nice. nice. Ben? Uh, I'd like to give it 11 out of the 14 verses or stanzas of the poem The Man from Snowy River, which is quite long. It's 96 lines long. And because that part of the book, I was amazed and delighted at how long it went on <laughs> and how baffling it must be for anyone <laughs> not familiar with that story. <laughs> Justin? I will take six out of ten weak exported beers. Uh, and I give it a wine spectator score of 76. <laughs> so before we move on to the bit, um, Ben, Liz, uh, where can the internet find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think that's probably the best place to find me. It's at Elizabeth Flux. So that's F-L-U-X. Um, yeah, it's terrible puns most of the time. So I'm just warning you that going in. But, you know, have a nice time. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. It's Mackenzie underscore Ben. Um, you may, I mean, look, just to clarify, I'm not the one on Gotham in case any listeners are confused. That's a totally different Ben McKenzie. Uh, but I somehow luckily managed to get almost my real name for Twitter. And if you want to listen to our podcast, which is Pratchat, uh, another podcast that's reading not just the Discworld books, but all of Terry Pratchett's works, um, we're at pratchatpodcast.com and all the usual places where you can follow podcasts. Excellent. Justin, would you like to do the honor of the bit? Yes. So we are moving on to book 23, uh, which is Carpe Jugulum. In a fit of enlightenment, democracy, and a brilliant goodwill, King Varence invites Uberwald's undead, the Magpiers, into Lancra to celebrate the birth of his daughter. But once ensconced within the castle, these wine-drinking, garlic-eating, sun-loving modern vampires have no intention of leaving. Ever. Only an uneasy alliance between a nervous young priest and the argumentative local witches can save the country from being taken over by people with a cultivated bloodlust and bad taste in silk waistcoats. For them, there's only one way to fight. Go for the throat, or as the vampires themselves say. Carpe jugulum. This is going to be a fun yeah. book. Oh, you're in, you're in for a treat. <laughs> also, magpies, so watch out. Like, for an Australian, <laughs> vampires that can turn into magpies are particularly frightening. Yeah, it's bloody good. <laughs> I'm looking forward to... to uh, hey, this is a book where I actually get to put, like, some of my uh, past expertise to use. Because I've read the I've read the ridiculous outtakes of Dracula so many goddamn times. <laughs> there is also like the single most Granny Weatherwax Granny Weatherwax moment in this book. Mm. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, oh, I, now I just really want to do some proper Australian swearing. We didn't even me- Liz. We didn't even mention I'm not here to fuck spiders. I mean, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I should have worn my I'm not here to fuck spiders T-shirt. I've got it upstairs. Uh, I'm wearing uh. my Nam T-shirt. This is my this is my Nam T-shirt. Uh, that is the that is the uh, indigenous name for Melbourne where we live. Nam. Um, so I thought this thing would be appropriate shirt to wear. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> this actually, the story behind the show, quickly, you don't have to include this in the podcast. This is from Clothing <laughs> the Gap, which is a, um, a clothing company that sells Indigenous designs to raise money for um, Indigenous health outcomes uh, as part of the Closing the Gap um, sort of scheme, which is to close the gap between life expectancy and health uh, between the Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous populations in Australia. They recently had to change their name because The Gap sued them and told them they had to. <laughs> oh, my to. God. <sighs> the capitalism is the worst. Do we even have The Gap here? Folks. We don't even have The Gap here. Mm. <laughs> we, do, we just don't. We have some of their other brands that they own, mm. but we don't really have The Gap, no. I mean, this so, and this just is the worst. of course, this is also coming from the company that has you know, as one of its sub companies, Banana Republic. Mm. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, the banana bending. That's a that's a thing. It's a not a not a real thing, but it's a real term. Anyway, <laughs> let's not go into it. There's no, more, there's no time. Left. It's over. We're done. <laughs> Get out of here. It's probably important pre-recording context that you know that um, we, we've we've had a cumulative like what is it Liz now two hundred and forty days of lockdown. Yeah, I think yeah, we're the we're, longest lockdown. We just overtook Italy or something. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. not great. So, uh, and I think that this one's now like over a month, if I'm remembering rightly. It all blurs now. So we may be slightly loopy uh, from not having talked to anyone we didn't know for like a long time. So, just so you know. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>